It's the 28th of May, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. You are where you need to be. We have all the news. I want to remind you that we have expanded coverage of ULAR 2021, a virtual meeting. It's going to start on June the 2nd. Our coverage will be coming to you starting June the 3rd. Look for that. I think you're going to enjoy the way we channel the information your way. Uh, also, the next week is our last week of the reprise editions of Room Now Live. We're featuring the session on lupus with three great speakers, Drs. Petrie, uh, McMahon, and Cockerell, talking about lupus topics. Really a great session. I think you're going to enjoy uh, this. Join Artie Cavanaugh and I as we host you for a Tuesday night session beginning at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Central Time. And then if you're in the Pacific or Pacific Islands, you're going to have to do some other math. I don't know what time. So this week we have some news from the DDW. Those are the digestive meetings, similar to RACR. They're having their virtual meetings this week. And they had a report in there that thought it was of interest to rheumatologists. It's a claims analysis of basically psychiatric disease amongst IBD patients. But more importantly, they looked at patients with IBD, very large cohort, um, and those who also had IBD with an, another diagnosis of RA. So IBD with RA, presumably IBD arthritis or seropositive or seronegative RA with IBD. And I think the data was kind of striking. The frequency of depression in IBD alone was 21%. But if you had IBD and RA, 84%? What? Anxiety, 20% IBD alone, having both, 47%. Uh, and I guess this is any one-time coding, so you know how accurate is this? But again, the, the fact that if you have RA in addition to IBD, the added comorbidity means an added psychiatric psychologic stress. So the overall odds ratios of the combined disorders for depression is a seven-fold increased risk. Um, it's about a 25 increased risk for anxiety. We see it. We don't often deal with it. We often don't test for it. But these are big players, IBD and anxiety, in the outcomes of our patients. Maybe we should be paying more attention. Uh, discussion this week about drug-induced vasculitis, drug-induced ANCA positivity, and it turns out that, you know, you do a search on this, levamisole, is a common adulterant in these cases of um, cocaine or fentanyl or any narcotic. Levamisole is thought to be an impurity that may add to the problem, may increase the frequency. It is um, a vet drug, um, an antiparasitic drug. It's colorless, odorless, and I think it's added just to increase the bulk of the narcotic. Uh, and it has been associated with ANCA vasculitis, um, small vessel vasculitis, medium vessel vasculitis. A lot of cutaneous vasculitis, necrosis of the nose and of the ears and palpable purpura. It's also been associated with agranulocytosis. So um, you should be thinking vasculitis. If you're seeing vasculitis um, with these kind of lesions, you should, you should be thinking about, uh, you know, adulterated uh, narcotics as a potential source. I found an interesting study. I'm always interested in the uh, association between hepatitis B and our patients, patients on DMARs, patients on biologics. This Italian study of over 1,200 patients found that uh, in their overall population, hep B affected their patients up to 15% of the time. 
kind of a big number. But smaller when you break it out into chronic infection, 0.4%, resolved infection was 12.6%. That was sort of the biggest group. And uh, core antibody positivity alone, 2.6. Reactivation only occurred in 6%. There's only one episode of acute hepatitis. I think what you need to know when you do this testing is a few things. And we covered this this week. Great lecture by Stan Cohen, Tuesday Night Rheumatology, reprise of his lecture on RA and liver disease. You may want to look at that on roomnow.com or our YouTube channel. Stan shows you the numbers. The numbers basically are that uh, 2% uh, of our patients, well, no, of the patients who have resolved infection, that's hep B surface antigen negative, hep B core antibody positive, the risk of reactivation is about 2%. That risk of reactivation of hep B is lower, much lower, if you are surface antibody positive. So that's important to look for that as well. Again, the big risk area here is trying to give biologics to patients who are B surface antigen positive. Don't do it. High risk of reactivation. Or other high risk patients, especially patients on rituximab, a much higher rate of uh, rituximab hep B reactivation. So you may want to rethink using rituximab in patients with a prior history of hep B or hep B surface antigen positivity or even if they're hep B surface antigen negative and have a core antibody positive resolved infection, they're at high risk. Those people need to be on prophylaxis and or be referred to the hepatologist. A cross-sectional study looked at um, lung disease and RA. This is another work from Jeff Sparks' group, really interesting, showing that RA patients overall are, have an increased risk of both restrictive lung disease, 30 36% higher rate, and obstructive lung disease, 21% higher rate. Uh, that's not explained by other co-founders, including smoking. So um, this is important. RA patients overall have lower PFT numbers. FEV1, FVCs, the ratio. Um, again, we probably should be doing more lung testing and watching this because as I alluded to uh, on Room Now Live and last week, that lung disease is probably the big bad player in RA that we're not paying enough attention to. Um, a Danish registry, two studies actually this week, look at uh, cardiovascular risk in RA. A Danish registry that's doing CT scans of our patients, RA patients, and PSA, they looked at PSA, 1,300 uh, psoriasis patients, 370 psoriatic arthritis patients. They showed overall uh, those, uh, those patients are at higher risk for higher CT cardiac calcium scores. Uh, and if you look at um, their abnormal for just an abnormal score, greater than zero, but a cardiac um, artery calcium score greater than 400, that's pretty high, was seen, uh, was 25% higher in just psoriasis patients and was 28% um, higher in psoriatic arthritis patients. Overall, there's about a 50% increased risk of, uh, of coronary artery disease if you just look at these calcium scores based on CT scanning. Now, there's some argument about whether we should be doing that and what their true predictive value is. It doesn't always truly predict coronary artery disease, but it is nonetheless a very sensitive, maybe overly sensitive measure, coronary artery activity. Another report comes from uh, an analysis, uh, a prospective cohort that looked at uh, patients who had RA and were starting biologics and different DMARDs. Uh, and bottom line was that CV risk, cardiovascular risk, we know is decreased by the use of methotrexate. And they reaffirmed that in this particular study. Um, there are past studies that show that 
you need to be on methotrexate a while, like maybe a year, two years to really get that maximal or optimal benefit. Same has been said for TNF inhibitors. Also in this study, they confirmed that TNF inhibitors were associated with a decrease, a decrease, a significantly decreased risk of cardiovascular events, but also abatacept was. So I think that that's a newer addition, not surprising to me. Um, but basically, control of inflammation does control the progression to advanced cardiovascular disease. So yes, you should use the line with your patients. Um, being on these medicines will lower your future risk of coronary artery disease, MI, etc. And the other line that you need to use that kind of goes along with that is that the longer you're on those drugs, the safer they are. The longer you're on those drugs, the more they lower cardiovascular risk. That's why it's not very wise to be wanting to wean DMARDs or biologics or half the dose or try to go along with the patients who really would like to be off of all therapy. That's just not a good idea in 90% of patients. Um, there's two reports about uh, COVID research. Uh, another um, composite report of the Save More trials looking at anakinra in patients with severe COVID showed that in 600 or so patients, anakinra plus standard of care was 55% better than just plain standard of care in preventing death or progression to respiratory failure. So again, using it early, using it when they're hospitalized, anakinra IL-1 inhibition seems to make more sense. They also showed data showing that uh, those patients had greater hospital discharge rates and earlier, uh, and, and they were discharged from the hospital sooner. Um, the dose that they used in those trials, anakinra, 100 milligrams uh, a day, I guess it was given sub-Q, could be given IV, and given for up to 10 days. There was another nice study from, I think, JAMA Internal Medicine this week that looked at, it's a follow-up study from uh, Xavier Murray and French colleagues, where they did a reanalysis of their study of tocilizumab. Their first study that was published showed that while tocilizumab outcomes look good, um, there was uh, no difference in death at the primary endpoint, which was 28 days. They continued in the several hundred patient study and followed up, and they did show that day 90 deaths were less frequent in those who were treated with tocilizumab compared to usual care. That was 11% deaths versus 18% deaths. Furthermore, they showed that if you subdivided patients into those who had high CRP levels, and of course, these are severe hospitalized COVID pneumonia patients. But the ones who had higher CRP levels, 15 milligrams per deciliter, that's 150 milligrams per liter. That's very high. That, again, the primary endpoint was going to be met better with tocilizumab than to usual care. And that mortality rates were, 90-day mortality rates were overall less with tocilizumab than usual care, 9% versus 35%. So the, the big argument, and they kind of reviewed in the front part of their, their, their article, was that there are eight studies, there are some mixed results. Four out of the, I'm sorry, maybe it's four out of the six studies. There were eight studies. Four out of six studies showed that it met a primary endpoint. There were two that did not, and there's basically a mixed bag. I think the story on IL-6 inhibition, as is the case with all the other drugs, is when you give them and who you give them to. What I give... IL-6 and IL-1 inhibition or colchicine for that matter to someone who just got diagnosed is an outpatient who does not have respiratory distress and is not on any medicine? No, you don't need it. And these are therapies that need to be intervened and patients sick enough to be admitted to the hospital, patients with respiratory distress. And it looks like the earlier you give them, the better off the patient will, 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 will be. They advocated for such patients 
that were admitted to their hospital getting tocilizumab and dexamethasone as their therapy. Our last report is about triple DMARD therapy. This is a report from uh, the Swedish registry that looked to, at patients who were um, being put on their first therapy with incident RA, 1,500 patients who were followed. Uh, and the bottom line is I thought it was going to say that if you look at some of their graphs, it looks like triple DMARD does just as well as patients put on a biologic plus methotrexate. And except that's an selective view of people who continued on therapy. Um, in that registry, and again, there's no proscribed regimen here. There's not prospective randomized. That uh, 1,100 started biologics and only 350 started triple DMARD. There's already an imbalance and probably a selection bias. Um, there were more treatment discontinuations in the triple DMARD group. Um, triple DMARD patients um, had basically milder disease going in. Patients going into these trials, uh, into this registry, basically had like six tender, six swollen. These weren't really red hot patients, but they had less disease activity and yet they didn't do quite as well. In the first 12 months, there was better success with biologic therapy, similar to that seen in the uh, tear and racket study. Um, but if patients stayed on triple DMARD, they did just as well in achieving sustained remission as did patients who were on biologics. So it does work for some patients. The problem is it's a minority. The problem is I don't know who they are. So again, the conundrum of trying to be cheap and cost effective and not jump right to biologics seems prudent. But when you have the biologics outperforming your triple DMR therapy, it's worrisome. So anyway, hope you tune in next week for more on Room Now. Take good care of yourselves. Bye-bye.